what was prison like? Oh, wow. How much time do you have? That's a big <laughs> question. It is. Hi, CityCast listeners. Today, I'm talking again with one of our frequent guests, Carrie Blakinger of The Marshall Project. But this time, Carrie isn't here as the best corrections reporter in Houston or in Texas or arguably in the entire United States. Carrie has just published a new memoir, Corrections in Inc. So today, in the first of a two-part series, I'm talking with her about her life before she was a journalist. Before she covered prisons, she was a prisoner herself. Some of the language and some of the corrections we'll talk about are intense. So consider yourself warned. Carrie, could you start by reading the opening of Corrections in Ink? Do you have it with you? I do, I do. Imagine that. What author doesn't have their book in like immediate reach <laughs> days before publication? Yeah, especially one as anal retentive as you. Okay, I have problems. I am out of clean clothes. I cannot find my glasses, my English paper is late, and my pockets are not big enough for all the heroin I have. But honestly, more than anything, I want a cigarette. I'm only 10 minutes from where I'm going and it's cold outside. The sun is deceptive. It looks like a nice upstate New York morning, but really it's December and the wind is whipping up from Ithaca's gorges. I stop walking and push my fingers deep into my pockets in search of a parliament. In a minute, there will be police with questions and handcuffs. By tomorrow, my scabby-faced mugshot will be all over the news as the Cornell student arrested with $150,000 of smack. I will sober up to a sea of regrets. My dirty clothes and late English paper, one of the last assignments I need to graduate, will be the least of my problems. But that's all in the future. Right now, I just want that cigarette. Where the fuck did I put them? It's Monday, June 6th, 2022. I'm Lisa Gray, and this is CityCast Houston. So that is the opening of your book. It's Ithaca, New York. It's 2010. You're... 26 years old at that moment when your life suddenly changes. Could you start by backing up and talking about who you were before you were a heroin addict and walking around with a Tupperware full of smack? Yeah. So I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. My mom was a teacher. My dad was a lawyer. I had a pretty normal upper middle class upbringing. Um, except for one thing, which was that I was a competitive figure skater. Gated. Oh, that little thing. <laughs> you were like not just any figure skater, right? Um, yeah, I did. I did pairs, which is where the guy throws you around and it looks all dangerous and shit. Yeah. And you you skated at nationals. You were a legit Olympic possibility. Like what? You had your eyes on it in middle school? Yes, we competed at nationals twice. Yep. I mean, my, my goal had always been nationals. My goal had not been Olympics, um, although that is where he ended up going eventually. By high school, I was leaving school every day at like 10 in the morning and I'd be at the rink until like five or six training. So skating was my whole life, my whole identity. I was also, you know, struggling with eating disorders like a lot of skaters. And I was, you know, pretty anxious and depressed. I mean, it's, a, it's an intense sport. During my junior year of high school, my 
pair partner decided to branch out and find another partner. And in pairs, this is a big, big deal. Yeah, because the thing is, like in skating, there's so many more women than men that, you know, he could find a partner the next day or within a few weeks. And for me, it could be like weeks or months or never. And, you know, the other thing is this is a sport where you're being told that you're getting too old from like as young as you can remember. It seems wild now, but I remember there was a 23-year-old skater that was referred to as the old lady. So the idea that your life is over already. Right. So at 17, the thought of a year off seemed catastrophic. Yeah. You know, like this was potentially just the end. And since that was sort of my whole identity and everything I did, my social group, my whole future, when I felt like I was losing that, I just completely fell apart. I sort of liken it to as if you've gotten like divorced and fired from your job, but also every job forever. (laughs) And so how did you react? I mean, well, for a few months, I, I think I just cried in my room every night. Like I was still skating, but I was also just a, you know, crying, moping mess for months. And my parents were eventually like, Hey, why don't you go to Harvard summer school. They thought that this was the type of thing that would really excite me. And I'd be really into going to, you know, an Ivy league summer school. And because you're type A and you want to win <laughs> whatever you do. And it was also near an ice rink. Oh, so okay. it was like, I could still walk to a rink and, you know, continue skating. And it sounded good in theory, but what it meant was that the first time that I had no supervision at all coincided with the point at which I was already starting to unravel. And by the end of that summer, I stopped going to the rink as much and gotten a little bit into drugs. And then a few days after I got back, I, you know, depending who you ask, I either got into a fight with my parents and ran away or got kicked out and ended up spending most of my senior year living on the streets, doing sex work and shooting up. I continued to be a mess off and on for the next nine years. Well, mostly just a mess bumbling my way through college, first at Rutgers and then at Cornell. And then I got arrested in December of 2010. So that was the arrest that you read to us about? Yes. That was the first time you'd been arrested? Um, No, it wasn't the first time, (laughs) but it was the first conviction. Okay. I'd been arrested in New Jersey with a small amount of weed and like maybe some Coke. And I ended up getting a year of probation and then the charges were dropped. I'd never been in jail before. And I think I'd probably only had to set foot in a courthouse like once for that other case. So I did not have any conviction record. So in 2010, you're suddenly in jail. Yes. Yeah. What was jail like? You know, I think that one of the things that people don't think about with getting arrested or going through the system is how confusing it is. You know, there's so many basic things about being locked up that your average person doesn't know because you have no reason to know these things. Just the sort of the whole intake process and the guards act like you're supposed to just know what to do next or, you know, not be surprised by what's happening. Like you should, of course, expect that you have to you know, stand naked in a shower with like delousing shampoo on, on your head while a guard's watching you. I mean, I I don't think I objected because I was pretty high, but (laughs) like just the, the little things that they expect you to know or to understand, you know, after I went through the whole booking process, 
they sent me off into a cell block and, you know, said, that's your cell. And, you know, I walked in and they shut the door and I was so confused because everyone else was out and walking around and here I was locked in. And I was like, what did I fuck up already? Like, how am I already locked in and everyone else is out? And nobody tells you that was just like their routine medical isolation. And that's such a little thing, you know, it doesn't take long to tell someone, oh, you're going to be just medically isolated. It's totally normal. It'll last for X amount of time. Right. But I don't know if it's just that they don't care if you understand what's happening or they just sort of assume that everyone in jail has probably been there a bunch of times before, so it doesn't need anything explained. But, you know, it's very disorienting to just sort of be locked in a cell with no explanation. I mean, that's just one example, but it was sort of like every single thing that happens throughout that first day or so, you just don't understand what's going on. Like, I didn't know how to, how do I go about getting a lawyer? Are my charges serious? When will I be in court next? What is the possible sentencing range here? Am I going to get out? Like, am I going to get bail? Like, these are all things that have clear answers and nobody tells you because, I mean, the system doesn't really care if you understand it. So what happened? What was your sentence? So I ended up being sentenced to two and a half years and I did 21 months of that. I was incredibly lucky about a number of things. One of them was just the timing because I was arrested after the Rockefeller drug laws had been repealed, which were some of the nation's first really draconian drug laws. Mm -hmm. Over the nearly 36 years since their enactment, the Rockefeller drug laws have cost New York State's taxpayers hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. The stars seem to be aligned to finally changing that law. It has been chipped away at for a number of years, but now it looks as if the last remnants of the mandatory sentencing for nonviolent possession of drugs is likely to be wiped away. Under those laws, I would have qualified for a sentence of 15 to life. Aye, aye, aye. But because those were progressively repealed starting in 2004, and then there were some more changes in 2009, and then I got arrested in 2010, right after all these changes had been made. So instead, I was able to get a sentence of two and a half years. I mean, there was definitely other factors at play there. Mm -hmm. One of them, I think, was also the dumb luck of geography because I was arrested in a very progressive county. And had I been arrested half an hour away in some of the much more tough on crime conservative counties that are most of what upstate New York is, yeah. I could have gotten easily 10 or 20 years instead of two and a half. But then also, of course, race and privilege have huge role here. Yeah, you're white. You were at an Ivy League school. Yeah. I assume you you had a lawyer who knew how to milk that. I No, I actually, I, I, I did you not didn't. have a paid no. lawyer. I had a, I had a court-appointed lawyer. Okay. People could at least see your whiteness by looking at you. Yes. <laughs> and, um, you know, but the other big thing about that is I think that a lot of times people think about white privilege in a specific arrest. Like they say, oh, in this one instance, you know, the judge probably treated you better because you were white. And that is a thing that I think is really hard to prove or disprove. So on a on an individual anecdotal level, it's really easy to dismiss white privilege when you look at it in only that time frame. But the reality is that I'd been doing drugs off and on for nine years at that point. And I had a lot of interactions with police that I think could have gone very differently if I had been a person of color, if I had been someone that they would choose to view as more suspicious. And then I would have ended up with a long record going into that last arrest, which that alone would have qualified me for a harsher sentence. So what was it like 
going to prison. My first night in prison, for all the upstate New York counties, they would take the women to the closest prison and you would do one night there and then they would take you to the max and that's where you would get, you know, booked in and classified and they'd determine where you're going to go long term. But that first night, they just put all the new intakes, which was, I don't know, maybe five or ten of us in a dorm that almost looked like uh, a Harvard dorm where you've got like a, a hallway with like rooms <laughs> off of it with like bunk beds in them with metal security grading on the windows and literally nothing inside of it. <laughs> like we didn't have a clock. We did have a deck of cards and there were a few books. Yeah. But really all we had to do that night was just sit there and talk. And I think we played cards until like late in the night and, you know, just talked about where we thought we'd end up and where what prison we wanted, we hoped we would end up in and, you know, what we'd heard and what we would expect. And it seemed pretty non-threatening. Yeah. You know, it was not like what you think of when you're for your first night in prison. But then in the morning when we were getting loaded onto the bus to go to the max, I overheard two of the guards talking about this woman who was in shoe in solitary. And she, I don't, I don't know what happened to provoke this, but she took a shit on a mess all tray and pushed it back out the, the slot at the guards. I don't know if she was having a mental health issue or just being spiteful or if they had done something to wrong her. But in any case, they responded by turning off the water to her cell. And I overheard the one guard wondering about like, well, what's she gonna drink? And the other one was like, oh, she can drink out of the toilet. If it's good enough for my dog, it's good enough for her. And that was just, uh, that was a moment for me, like overhearing that and just sort of realizing that, yeah, they can do that. There is no oversight here, effectively. When something happens in prison, any oversight that exists is gonna be after the fact, after they've already done whatever they're gonna do. Did you ever end up in solitary? Yeah, I was in a few times for very short periods of time, just a few days when I was in the county jail. And um, some of it was just routine, like the medical isolation in the beginning. And a few times I was sent to another jail because our jail was overcrowded. And uh, some of those times I was in solitary at the beginning. Some of the cells have bars and then you can still talk to other people. But the first time that I was in solitary in a cell with a door, you know, I I don't know, man. I, I think that in theory, a lot of people think solitary doesn't sound that bad. They think, oh, I like spending time alone. Uh, you know, it, it would just be some a break from everything. It'd be some peace and quiet. But a meditation retreat. Right. I walked in that cell and it was just like a maddening. The walls were like a maddening shade of neon white. You couldn't see the clock. There was a little slit for a window that was very high up and you weren't allowed to stand on your bunk to look out it because they would yell at you to get off the fucking bunk. And um, as soon as that door shut behind me, I just burst into tears. It was just so immediately apparent that this was absolutely overwhelming. It's almost like being a a brain in a vat, like that philosophy yeah. conundrum. It's like that because so much of how you define who you are as a person is about how you interact with other people. Like that is how you define self is in relation to others and to interacting with other people. 
the ability to interact with other people and the ability to have agency and make choices are two of the biggest things as to how we define ourselves. But in solitary, you have neither of those. Yeah. And it very quickly feels like you are just a disembodied mind. And that is rough, right? I was trying to figure out how to kill myself reliably because I was worried if I, you know, tried and failed that I would just end up in a worse kind of solitary. You know, I I was trying to figure out, like, could I stand on the sink and fall in the right way that I would crack my head? I mean, it, it got very dark very quickly. And I knew that that wasn't forever, but it was just like, that was so bad, I didn't even care. I still have nightmares about it. Not as much as I used to, but I mean, it's been more than a decade. This is something I still have nightmares about. That was the first of our two-part interview with Carrie Blakinger. Her book, Corrections in Ink, will be released tomorrow. And that evening, she's appearing at Brazos Bookstore. We'll have a link to information about that event in our show notes, as well as a link to a site where you can buy a copy of that book for a prisoner. Now, I'm with producer Farrell Gibbs. Farrell, what else is going on in Houston and in Texas? Thank you, Lisa. There was a tweet late Friday by the Chronicle's Julian Gill, who said, quote, We went to Uvalde to respectfully cover funerals without causing any more hurt to families who have been through so much. But the way journalists were treated by visiting law enforcement and bikers was unlike anything I've ever experienced. In a related article, Julian painted a picture of police coming from all over Texas, from Fort Worth, Lubbock, Allen, Grand Prairie, College Station, Conroe, Pearland, even others whose officers in at least one instance, quote, allowed bikers to obstruct some cameras within designated media areas. Now, the bikers are reportedly from a group called Guardians for the Children. And one of those group members who declined to give her name was quoted as saying that the group was working with the police. Julian did interview Del Rio's Lieutenant Hubert Smith, who had sent some of his own department out to Uvalde. And when told about the biker incident, the lieutenant said, That is something we will not tolerate. We are trying to help, but as far as my understanding, we're not engaging as far as blacking out the press or anything like that. I hope not. That is it for our show today. Be sure you come back tomorrow because Carrie is going to talk about how she survived prison and now how she's using her experience to help other people. We'll talk with you then. I feel like Carrie landing her double axle. Yeah.